young age. So uh, we love our kids' ministry. They do a fantastic job. I think I shared a few weeks ago that uh, my son Grayson is learning many things, in- including how to use biblical knowledge to diss <laughs> his mother and, and me. Uh, he, told, he told my wife, Allie, he was very upset at her, probably because he wasn't allowed to eat more gummy bears. He said, uh, I'm going to send you to Jericho. <laughs> so if you know the story of Jericho, the walls fall down on Jericho. So uh, he got her good, and I was proud and also a little concerned, but mainly proud. He's learning, okay? He's learning. He's considering the truth of Scripture. So uh, we do take the Bible very seriously here at Sedaris. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, would you grab it? If you don't, there's some on the ends of the rows. You can also look it up on your phone if you want, but I, I love having the physical copy of the Scriptures. What a blessing it is to live in this day and age when we have such access to the Word of God. Uh, translated into our languages and most languages around the world. It's truly an honor and a blessing. So if you don't own a copy of this book, just take one of these Bibles home with you. Let it be a gift from us to you. And we are starting a new teaching series this week in the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament. It's almost near the end of your Bible, so you can see how much has come before we get to Colossians. So you can use the table of contents to find Colossians. It's a small book, just four chapters. And this is our primary method of teaching at Sedaris. We like to, to, to walk through books of the Bible because we don't believe that knowledge begins and centers on us. And so we trust that God has spoken. And so we start with what he has revealed to us through his word. And then we ask him to teach us through it. So that's how we do it here at Sedaris. And, and uh, we just recently finished walking through the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Now we're back into the New Testament Uh, hearing from God through the apostles of the New Testament. Let's just read the very first verse, and it'll, it'll help us jump into some important background that we'll need as we read through the book of Colossians. And when I say book, it's really a letter, a letter written to the church in Colossae. Ready? Here we go. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. There we are. At the very beginning, we have an introduction to who the author of the book of Colossians is, who he's written it to. This is why we call it the letter to the Colossians, because Paul tells us this is who I'm writing to. And we also have another character, Timothy. So Paul... Uh, he is one of the apostles, uh, which is, you know, one way to think about it is we just went through the Old Testament minor prophets. There was 12 of them. You could think of the apostles in the New Testament as, as sort of functioning in the same role. They are the mouthpieces of God. They are moving the mission and purposes of God forward after Jesus' life, death, and what we celebrated last week, his resurrection. Then they are sent out. Apostle just means sent ones. They are sent out into the world with the message of Jesus which we call the gospel. And so Paul, an apostle, is one of these 12 that we see in the New Testament. And he has encountered the risen Jesus. He went around planting churches all over the Mediterranean world. Paul is really the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles just means non-Jewish people. And so he is really sort of on the front lines of, of what Jesus always said is that he is drawing all people groups, all races, all ethnicities, all languages, all cultures to himself 
through the gospel, and Paul is sort of the first one that we see doing that in very significant ways. Okay, and he's probably writing this letter while he himself is imprisoned in Rome. He'd made it, made it all the way to Rome to take the gospel to the capital of the Roman Empire, and in about AD 62, he's imprisoned there awaiting trial, and he writes several letters uh, back to churches in other parts of the Mediterranean world that he had either helped himself to start or had helped to encourage over the years, okay? Now, Timothy... You may recognize this name because there are two books called First and Second Timothy, also written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy was uh, somebody that came under the leadership and teaching of Paul, kind of like a little brother to Paul. And Timothy also just helped Paul in his mission. And so probably what's going on here is Timothy is like a scribe, like a secretary for Paul as Paul orates this letter and Timothy is actually writing it with his hand. That's probably what's going on, which is why uh, Paul says, hey, and Timothy, our brother, he's also helping to write this letter. He also greets you. So these two are writing this letter. Now, why are they writing the letter? This is important, and this will come up each and every week as we go through 10-week series. There's so much good stuff in Colossians, so if we decide, we'll pull an audible and, and push it 11, 12 if we need to. But we'll come back to this. So, so we need to know, when we read the Bible, what was the occasion? Why was this letter written from Paul in prison in Rome to this church in Colossae, which is back in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey? Why, why is he doing this? Well, what we find out as we continue to read is that there was another brother in the church named Epaphras, who had come to Rome and told Paul that back in his home church, Epaphras' home church in Colossae, they were experiencing some serious challenges. And those challenges were probably related to divisions and disunity that was stirring up amongst the church there. Now, here's what we need to know about Epaphras. He had become a Jesus follower because of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which is another church in Asia Minor. That's on the coast, and that's about 120 miles away from Colossae. So he had come to hear, he'd heard of this Paul, and he'd come to hear the message of the gospel that he was proclaiming when Paul was ministering for several years in the city of Ephesus. He comes there, comes to believe that the gospel is true, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's died on the cross for the sins of all people who turn to him, and he's, and he's risen from the grave. He's come to believe it, and he's so excited about it that he returns home to Colossae to start a church. This is always how the gospel moves forward. People come to encounter Jesus, and then those, those churches send out other people to start new churches. This is why we exist as a church. Somebody built into us, helped us to see the gospel for what it was and see God's mission to the world. And so we were sent out to start a new church. Our home church was in Denver, a little bit more than 120 miles away. Although I did live in Texas for a time and everybody uh, thought when they heard I was from Seattle, they used to say, oh, that's just right past Denver, right? <laughs> well, take a look at a map. It's quite a ways past Denver, but you know, I love Texans. They are the center of the world. I consider myself an honorary Texan, so if you're from Texas, come talk to me. I love Texans. A little bit more than 120 miles, but that, that's where it was, Ephesus to Colossae. That'd be about a two-and-a-half-hour drive if you had an automobile, about a five-day walk if you didn't. So Epaphras has helped to start the church in Colossae, but they had come upon some challenges, so he goes to Rome 
uh, maybe for this reason, to visit Paul, to get Paul's opinion on how, do, how does he keep on mission at, in his church. He probably gets thrown in jail as well for something he was doing in Rome. And so they're probably just meeting in these circumstances, talking about how do we curtail the divisions that are happening amongst the people in the Colossians church. And so Paul writes this letter. He has authority because he is seen and known as an apostle of Christ. And so he writes with authority, reminding people of what they must do, what they must focus on. Because more likely than not, what was going on is there was these different factions within the group who had attached the gospel to other things. One one such thing, we'll see this as we read through, is probably paganism. In the Hellenistic world, that is to say the Greek world at this time, they were still worshiping uh, many gods. You think of the Greek and the Roman gods, of Zeus and Apollos and whatnot. They, they would just attach Jesus as this one other god to worship. We call this syncretism. We're syncing up the gospel of Jesus with all the cultural idols of worship that already exist. Another faction within uh, the church was probably telling people that they had to become more Jewish. They had to start following and observing the Jewish religious laws in addition to believing and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could call this Jewish legalism or self-righteousness, adding religious ritual to the message of the gospel, which is a message of grace and mercy in Christ alone for salvation. They'd added things on. Now, guess what? Do you think these things still happen today? Absolutely. This is why the book of Colossians is going to be so relevant to us. And Paul will come in and what he'll say is the gospel of Christ Jesus is enough. And it's the only object of our worship. And so he'll explain to us why that is. Look at what he says at the end of verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That is the heart of the gospel, that God through Christ has given grace to us and therefore we have peace with God through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since, what, what are they praying about? What are they thanking God for? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Now, isn't this interesting? Maybe it's not super interesting to you. But think about when you tend to write a letter to somebody or you call them on the phone. What's the first thing that you normally say? What's one of the first things you, you normally say? But I think one of the things I hear so often is, how's your health? How's your health? And that was actually very common. If, if we have examples of, of ancient uh, Hellenistic letters as well, which is, this is a letter. This is written to a group of people, and when we see other similar letters, often in this introduction section, what you always see is, we've heard of your good health, thanks be to God. Right? And we do that too, right? Now, interestingly, and you'd only know this if you, if you studied other letters at the time, this makes this letter so unique because Paul is thanking God, but look at what he's thanking God for. Not their good health, not their fortune, you know, not good fortune, not, not I heard you got a new job, not, 
those things are not bad, but what does Paul say? I've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard of the love that you have for others. This should tell us something. This should remind us that the purpose of the church is to focus on the vertical relationship first, not the horizontal. The horizontal is important, but it's the vertical relationship with God that that we should thank God for. When people come to a faith in Jesus Christ, that is even more important than good health, even more important than good fortune. It is the most important thing. And, And Paul breaks from convention here and says, this is what I thank God for. Very interesting. So, okay, what now is the source What is sourcing? What is leading to faith and love for all the saints? And when we say all the saints, we're saying all believers, fellow believers in Jesus Christ. What is it? Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Interesting. Interesting. He talks about this common hope, this one hope that all Christians share, and the results of that hope. When we, when we hope in the things laid up for us in heaven, it leads to faith and love for all. Interesting. Interesting the order that he puts these in. And, and these, this triad of faith, love, and hope are found often in the letters of Paul, but here, very specifically, we see that it's because they have put their hope in heaven, that they're able to live into faith and love for one another. Now, here's what we have to be very clear about. What is hope? It's not so much a subjective feeling or sentiment. When Paul says hope, it's it's not so much a feeling of hope or a feeling of optimism, but it is actually the locale of your investment, your tangible investment. That's your time, your talents, your money. These are tangible things. Hope is not just a sentiment. I I, I can't stress that enough. Hope is not just a sentiment. Some of us have more natural optimism. Some of us have more natural pessimism. But all of us can have this one common hope, which is a tangible investment of the things that we care for most. And if we hope and lay up our hope in heaven... We will have more faith and more love. And this common hope, this hoping in the same thing together, is really the most important ingredient to unity, the most important ingredient to love for all the saints and for all the churches and for all denominations of God's people. If we don't have a common hope, but we're all hoping in different things, it will lead to disunity, fracturing. And boy, do we have to lament the fact that the church of Jesus Christ over the centuries has not hoped in the same thing. We have placed our hope in very different places, and therefore we have become fractured, and we have hurt our witness to the watching world. Wow, wow, you want me to be a part of that? Look at how divided you are. Look at how upset with each other you are. And I think Paul would say the main reason is that we have not laid up our hope in heaven but we've laid up our hope in things here on earth, whether that be power or buildings 
or money or our right way of doing worship or theological systems of belief. Paul would say, what are you doing? We have a common hope. All of the saints have a common hope, and that hope is in heaven. Look at verse 12. Jump, jump forward with me. We'll read this in a second. Look at what he says. What is this hope in heaven? What is in heaven? He says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, and as we'll see, through the blood of Jesus, through the redemption of Jesus, to what? To share in the inheritance of of the saints. There is an inheritance, and it's actually the Son's inheritance, the Son, Jesus Christ. It's His inheritance that God now qualifies us through our faith in Jesus Christ to partake in. And it is an eternal, everlasting, unchanging, full inheritance, and we get to participate in that. We talked about that last week in the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the inheritance of life eternal for our physical bodies. And we too, if we're connected to Jesus, get to share in that inheritance. We too will experience resurrection, our physical body and our spiritual bodies to life everlasting with God. Amen. This is the hope. If we hope in that inheritance and not in our earthly inheritance, we can find unity and not disunity. Okay. At this point... I need to just pause, and we need to highlight what will be a critical concept throughout this series in Colossians, okay? Throughout this series in Colossians, because I've just told you, and Paul has told you, to hope, to lay up your hope in heaven, and I think most of us have a uh, misunderstanding about what heaven is and what earth is, okay? So we need to... Set this straight, and we'll come back to this again and again. It'll be one of the key concepts throughout our series, and it's this. How are heaven and earth related? Okay, because we can say, store up your hope in heaven, and we're going to think a lot of different things, and we've been taught a lot of different things, and I think a lot of the things we've been taught about heaven are wrong. We did a whole sermon series a couple years ago about heaven. You can go, if you want more information on this, go listen to that. I hope it's in line with what I'm about to say here. But let me just explain to you how heaven and this physical universe, when I say earth, I'm talking the cosmos, the physical universe. How are those two related? Okay, lots of times this is how we think of it. We think heaven is here, okay? It's this realm here. And over here, earth, okay? So you have heaven and you have earth and they're not connected at all. It's, it's like uh, heaven is, is kind of, it's, it's like the Caribbean. It's these islands where if we could all just get our own private island, it'd be really great. And the mainland's over here, and they're separated. And, you know, Jesus came over, you know, he took a plane, and he landed on the mainland. He told, saved people. And then he's like, soon I'll get you a ticket, and you can come over here to the Bahamas, and we've got this thing set up. It's going to be great. So they're separate, okay? That's not right. That's not right. A little bit better than that is to just kind of go like this and tilt this thing on its axis, okay? Heaven is up here and earth is down here. So now we don't need an airplane or a boat. What we need is a spaceship. 
You know, because the Bible will talk about heaven is above. We'll even see that in Colossians. Think about the things that are above. And so we tend to think if I just look up, I'm looking towards heaven, though it's a very long ways away, but it's somewhere way out there. It's totally distinct from earth. They're two totally separate things, but at least it's a little bit closer because I got the above thing and the below thing. That's not right. Here's how I think we need to think about heaven and earth. And and my arms aren't long enough. I've got a pretty good wingspan, but not long enough. This is heaven. This feels good. Have you ever done this? It's called power. What do they call that? I'm I'm powering up. Okay. Heaven is all of it. And within heaven is earth. Okay? Okay. Now, let me talk about there's still distinction here because Jesus, the Son, came from heaven to earth. Okay, but, but heaven is everything. It is the higher reality. It is more real even than the earth. It is a higher reality. It is not sort of some uh, staging area where God is sort of put off and he's waiting to, to finally come back and take what is his. No, earth is just this domain within the reality of heaven. And in Christ, we'll read in Colossians, God is reconciling this little rebellious spot back into the fullness of what is God. Now, let me try to explain uh, this, okay? If this is true, that it's not these two totally separate places or realms, but actually it's heaven and earth is, is somehow within it, which I think is right. We have to understand that heaven has existed forever. Heaven actually existed before God created the cosmos, the physical universe. This is what the Bible teaches. It was God's place where God dwelled perfectly. That had no beginning and that has no end. So heaven that existed before he created the physical universe will exist beyond everything. It will be the reality that exists. So heaven is right now, not some, you know, distant island, not some planet out beyond the cosmos that we know about. Heaven is right now, here in a sense, and it is the place where God's unfiltered presence and his unchallenged rule and reign exist perfectly. Do you understand that? It is the place, the reality, where true peace exists, where true honesty exists. There is no lies in in heaven. And guess what else? There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no hostility, This is the space, the reality of true joy, true worship, true relationship, as it's always intended to be. And it was like that before God created, and and we read in Genesis 1, that he spoke into existence the physical cosmos. And guess what? It's not going anywhere. It will be, because it is where God is in his full, unfiltered presence. Now then, what is earth, or the cosmos, the universe, the created physical material world? What is that? It is right now, right now, 
It is a place of God's filtered presence. It's a place where it's hard for many people to even see God's presence. Uh, One way you could think about it is the difference between a sunny day, the sun is there, you know it's there, it's clear, there's not a cloud in the sky, versus a cloudy day. You know, some people, you live in Seattle long enough, you wonder if the sun has gone somewhere. Did it go to the Bahamas? Yes, in a sense, <laughs> but it's still there. You just, it's hard to see. You just see little hints of it. But it's still there. This earth, this physical universe, it is a place of war and deceit and shame and guilt and hostility Can we agree on that? It is a place of partial joy, partial happiness, distorted worship, and relationship, but relationship that always leaves us wanting something more. You feel that? Now, how do we know that there's more to relationship? Because heaven where perfect relationship exists, still exists, and always existed, and always will exist, and somehow our hearts testify to the fact that these relationships aren't what they're meant to be, that war isn't meant to be. And everybody realizes that. They just don't realize what they're glimpsing is the sun, the hope of something better that only comes by the full presence of God. Now, let me make this clear. The reason why there's a distinction between heaven and earth is not because creation or material reality is bad. It's actually very, very good. God made it, and he made it very good. He's very happy with what he's created. He's not trying to take everything back to just spirit. He loves what he's created. He loves the material world. But because of sin and rebellion against God's rule and reign, because we've said, God, I don't want you to rule and reign, something is off. Something's out of whack. And so this very good thing that God wants to restore has gone wrong. Remember, heaven always existed And God creates the material world to share his presence and his authority with others. And with others, through creation, by the word, this has led to what we call earth. And it always was meant to be a part of heaven. God is actually adding to what heaven meant. He says, now heaven is going to mean, yes, my full presence and my full reign and perfect worship and perfect relationship and the physical created universe. That was always the plan. You see how it's within a part of God's kingdom? But in our attempt to usurp God's rule, to usurp God's word, to usurp God's law and to establish our own way, our own truth, our own laws, our own government, our own kingdom, with our own kings, we've created this somewhat separate but not truly separate, reality. The separate kingdom that the Bible calls earth or the universe. 
In some ways, it's distinct. God has shut us out of the fuller reality of his full presence because of our sin and rebellion. But in another way, it's not really distinct. Here's a, I hope this is starting to make sense. It's so important. Here's an illustration. Anybody been a teenager in here? What did you do when you were a teenager? You thought you were creating your own world, your own kingdom, these things that your parents knew nothing of. You were sure of it. It's distinct. Parents' kingdom, my kingdom. Until before the party even happens, your mom says to you, hey, I heard you're going to a party this weekend. And you're like, I literally just got that text 10 seconds ago. How did you know that there was a party? Anybody else? Or is that just me? My mother may have had omniscience. She does have the spirit of God. She could have been able to see this. This mother's network, at least uh, where I grew up, was so strong that I literally think they knew before we knew that we were going to be doing something improper. You see, I think that it's distinct. I think that it's different. I think that I've created my own way, rule, law, truth. But in reality, from my parents' perspective, they, they pretty much know what's going on. Though there's some things, you know, I still find out some things that my mother didn't know. That's what we've done. And God's sitting here thinking, what are you doing? (laughs) Do you think that I I don't control it all? Why are you rebelling? Why are you trying to set up your own dominion within my kingdom? Uh, Another illustration that may be helpful This is going to be, like I said, a a, a key concept, so we'll come back to it, which is why I'm setting it up, and we'll try to keep giving you more illustrations to help you see how heaven and earth are related, okay? Think of a tumor in the body. Think of a tumor in the body. What What is a tumor? Well, it's good cells gone rogue. Try to recreate themselves but it didn't really work, and it actually creates death and not new life. See, it's the same. There are body, cells in the body that's the same, but it's also distinct. Like we can tell which cells are cancerous. But God, instead of, when, when cancer entered the world, instead of just saying, let's go straight to surgery, let's cut it out, let's remove the cancerous, rebellious, sinful cells, God decides, you know what, let, let, me, let me see, let me try to transform those cells back. You, you know what, I, I have love for those cells, I, I don't want to just cut them out. What if we try to save creation? What if we try to to save those rebellious, sinful parts of my good creation? And to do this, he decides the only way that it'll work is to take that which is from heaven, the good cells, and inject them into the tumor hoping that the healthy cells of heaven, the perfect, unmarred cells, might transform the deadly cells. That's the story of Jesus. You see that? That's the story of Jesus. That's why Jesus can't just be a human. He has to 
to be unmarked by, unaffected by the cancerous, deadly parts of creation because he's come to transform it back so that it can live in harmony with heaven again. You see that? You see, you see the picture here and the tumor here and God's love that he doesn't just cut it out? So when we pray, just as Jesus taught us to pray, how do we pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth as it already is in heaven. Here's what we're asking. God, what you began in the sending of the Son, Jesus, who is the Christ, which was heaven's pure, untainted, transformative cells, which took on humanity and attached itself to humanity so that we might once again become a match, heaven and earth. Please, God, continue to do that very same thing again and again and again and again until you heal the whole tumor. And this is what God does. And he does it by sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is pure, untainted Spirit of Christ, sent by Father and Son from heaven into earth so that it can begin to transform and heal that which is broken. To transform and heal this rebellious sector or domain of all reality to inject his presence in real and full and tangible ways into the tumor. When we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we're praying. And God does this by giving us the Spirit, you and me. If you're following Jesus, if you're trusting that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he's been risen from the dead by the Spirit, then you have the Spirit of transformation. It's in you. That's literally God's plan. It's how he's sending heaven to earth to heal it. We are the hands and the feet and the faces of heavenly transformation, of healing, of restoration, of bringing earth and heaven back into orbit with each other. Clear? <laughs> this is, these are big mysteries, and that's what Paul's going to help us to see in the book of Colossians. These big mysteries, when we see them rightly, it will change the way we store up our hope. So back now to this phrase, your hope laid up in heaven. He's so thankful, Paul is, for the hope that they've laid up in heaven. Again, not this distant Bahamas thing, not this other planet, but this truer, higher reality that is here already, but it's just having a hard time breaking through because of our stubbornness, our rebelliousness. When we lay up hope in that future, though present reality, things start to change. Again, I just want to make this so clear because this can be so confusing. I'm not saying that everything in this life is a waste because heaven is here. It's still breaking through in real ways, okay? So don't hear me and say, oh, you're just trying to get us to, to, to buy, you know, buy a ticket to, to the future. No, 
it's right here, it's right here, it's breaking through in real ways. How is it breaking through? Paul will say this throughout his letter. Hey, make sure that you're hoping in, that you're investing in, that you're storing up the things that will make it through this transformation process. Make sure you're not storing up things in things that won't, that will have to be removed. Eventually, there will be things that have to be removed. There will be a part of this transformation process that things will have to be taken out. Are you investing? Are you storing up? Are you hoping in the things that will make it through this process as heaven overtakes earth again? Someday it will be the only reality that is left. Again, a material reality and a spiritual reality. That's the promise of Scripture. Heaven and earth reunited. Material and spiritual realities reunited as God always intended, but without cancer. Live, work wisely, invest wisely. And Paul will say so lovingly in this letter because Paul has a pastor's heart. He, he, he really does want people to get it right for their good and for the glory of God. He'll say, I know that this is so hard to know which it is. Am I hoping in heaven or am I hoping in earth? This is so hard. You know, you can think about it like this. You know, will Bitcoin ever really become valuable? (laughs) This is hard to know. Uh, Some of you are old enough to remember when you went to Canada and you didn't have a credit card, you had to like get Canadian money, and then you always need to make sure you either spend all that money (laughs) or you got to go get it, you know, converted back into U.S. coinage Otherwise, guess what? In the States, it's worthless. The quarters don't even work in the vending machines. You're like, it's so close. How does it? No, I don't know. (laughs) It has literally no value here. Sorry, Canadians. Your currency has no value in the States unless it's transferred. Transferred. There are so many things that that, that we, uh, as, as just individuals and we as the church, We as Americans are convinced have real value. We're sure of it. But once we have the unfiltered light of heaven and God's presence, it will be exposed as utterly worthless. And I'm not just talking here about the obvious stuff like stamp collections. Sorry, stamp collectors. You won't need stamps in heaven, I don't think. Sorry. No, but that's funny, right? Uh, when, you, <laughs> when you think back on a younger version of yourself and you think about all the things that you thought had value, you know, I don't know, Beanie Baby collections, baseball cards, and you were sure of it one day. I'm really storing up for my college future. I'm going I'm to be able to pay for college with this. You're just sure of it. But then maturity comes to you and, and always brings better perspective. And you're like, wow. I really cared about those things. All of us have something like that, where maturity brings to us perspective. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. And we can laugh about it. And God wants us to laugh about it because he just wants to say, hey, you're just doing the same thing now as an adult that you did as a kid. You've convinced yourself that this has ultimate value or great value or that Bitcoin will truly one day pay off. And, you know, maturity brings maturity, which brings perspective. 
And this is going to be part of Paul's argument throughout this letter. He's going to say, I know that it seems like, it seems like you need to hold on to these things in your past that brought semblances of life, whether it's these old philosophies or these, you know, Jewish rituals and laws. I know that you think, how could it be bad? Because there was some good in it. There was some life in it. But if you saw things the way that they actually are, if you could zoom out and see what heaven is and what earth is, if you could see it, if you could see Jesus for who he actually is, you wouldn't struggle so much to just let go of the past or or, or those things that seemed helpful. Just let them go because ultimately they're, they're, they're unheavenly. If you saw it well from God's perspective, then you could free your hands up so that you could fully take hold of Jesus because he is the Christ. And in part of the series, what we'll do is we'll put the Christness back in Christ because we say that term, we use that title, and we don't even know what we're saying. It's not his surname. It's not like David Evanger. Christ is not Evanger. Christ is this cosmic reality that Paul gives us a glimpse into because he says you're going to need it Otherwise, you'll just keep holding on to these earthly things. But if you see Christ and you know what Christness really means, more on that next week, then you'll start to let go and grab hold of him. This is one of the main projects of Paul in the letter to the Colossians. He uses Christ 26 times, the name Christ. He only uses the name Jesus six times, not an accident. The name Jesus is the name above every other name, but the title Christ is truly the fuller picture of who Jesus is. And every time he uses Jesus, it's only in connection with Christ. So this is intentional. Paul has chosen again and again and again to highlight the Christness of Christ, and it's important to him for the same reasons that it's important to me. Why? All not yet Christians, and most Christians, in my opinion, I would say myself included, are gravely mistaken about who Jesus is. Your Jesus is way too small. Colossians will help to grow it. Acts 2.36 says this. We'll throw it up on the screen. God made this Jesus whom you crucified That's me and you, by the way. It's our sin that held him there. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. So so I, I, I think this happens so often. We start thinking about Jesus and even interacting with Jesus just by the name Jesus. Then, over time, we start to see the Christness of Jesus through books like Colossians, and we say, oh my gosh, I should probably start calling him Christ Jesus. (laughs) That's so good. And then eventually we get to the place where we say, my Lord, Jesus Christ. Colossians is going to help us walk down that to get to this most accurate title. It doesn't mean it's wrong to just reference Jesus or just Christ Jesus. It's just say, he is Lord and Christ, and his name is Jesus, and he took on our humanity while still being the Christ And he is today our Lord and Master. When and if you get your hope right, the realm 
which is the greater reality that is above all other reality, that is the reality of heaven, God's full, unfiltered presence. And you get the person right, that is Christ Jesus, our Lord, then you can start living rightly in this time and space, in this locale, in this domain, in the in-between of the already, because heaven is breaking through in really significant, powerful ways, starting with Jesus and breaking through, but not fully yet transformed into the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth and God reigning again fully with his created beings. So with that conclusion in mind of... of We've just gotten the picture now. Let's read again verses 13 through 14, okay? Throw that back up on the screen here, or you can follow along with me. Here we go. We always, Paul says, thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might, his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of of sin. See it? See how beautiful it is what God has done and is doing and what he has invited us into. In verse 13 there, I just I just love that distinction between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of our beloved son. It highlights what we already talked about. I think this is intentional. I think so. We think it's a kingdom but it's really just a domain. So you can think of it like this. Heaven is the internet, (laughs) and you can purchase some domain names, (laughs) and you can think you have your own little thing, but you're really just a part of this one large, I I think they call it the World Wide Web. (laughs) You see the difference? Oh, it's very nice that you have a domain, darkness, but you are just operating. God is allowing you to operate within his kingdom for a time, and one day he will shut down your domain, and never again... Will anyone be distracted by your lies, your fake news about who Jesus is? It's going to be gone. Praise be to God that we don't live in a domain of the sun. We live in his kingdom. And the domain of darkness is 
fading away. So if we're going to do this, if we're not going to be lured away by the many rabbit trails that take us away into darkness, and we want to move towards the light and towards truth, guess what we need? Well, first we need the Word of God to be the Word of God. The first place we turn, not the last place we turn. But then we're going to need much prayer for ourselves, and we must pray for other saints and other churches who are doing the work of breaking through the clouds so that people might see what heaven is actually like. You know that's what sideris means? With heavenly body? With heavenly body. We get to be like, like thank you God for the sun. We get to be in breaking, we be like a skylight into the domain of darkness so people can see this is what heaven will be like. This is the way we love one another. This is what true relationship looks like. But we need prayer if we're not going to get distracted, if we're not going to be discouraged, if we're not going to be disunified. We must stay focused on the one hope that we have, which is in Christ, in his eternal heavenly kingdom. So many things are trying to distract and discourage us and disunify us. It, it's unreal. In fact, in the 19, uh, early 1900s, there was one of the richest men that's ever lived, Andrew Carnegie. He was a steel tycoon. And at one point, he donated 7,600 organs, church organs, to churches around the world. Amazing, beautiful, expensive instrument. Seems like a nice thing, right? Well, later, guess what? Carnegie admitted that honestly, all he wanted to do was subvert the mission of those churches. And he knew if he bought them a really expensive, really beautiful instrument, that there would be people that would connect themselves to those churches that didn't really care about its mission to take the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God to the kingdom of earth, but they'd just get really interested in these organs. And they would subvert the mission, the true mission of the churches. That was literally his motivation. That's crazy. Beautiful things, good things, can easily get in the way of the greater things. A beautiful instrument can easily become an instrument of division and distraction and disunity. This happens with everything. Stuff, relationships, causes, political fights. But guess what? Guess what doesn't last into eternity? politicians. Well, maybe some of them, but they won't be politicians. There's no elections in heaven. There is no elections in heaven. It will not last, so don't make it an ultimate thing. Guess what? There's no causes. You know, you go to the zoo. I looked on the zoo website. They're saving turtles around the world, and that is a good thing. But guess what? There will be plenty of turtles in heaven. Now, this is not a bad thing. I'm just telling you. I was actually just watching a cartoon yesterday with Grayson, and, and it was all about Christmas, and, and, and what they said was really good is, you know what? There's some endangered species, and we need to go save them, but what about our Christmas party and our presents? And, and, and the, the character said, you know what? That stuff's not really that important. That's true. You know, the next thing they said is, what's important is saving these animals. And I thought, wow, that is important. But you see how it has just, a good thing has become an ultimate thing. And it's just, it, it's just so hard to know when something has become our ultimate hope instead of just a good 
inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We have to, we have to look closely, okay? It's not that these things aren't important. It's just that they should not rise to the level of ultimate importance. Or they will distract, they will discourage, they will divide us so that we do not live, love, and learn together for the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others, which is what? The inbreaking kingdom of heaven. We need prayer for perspective, for prioritization. We must pray for ourselves, we must pray for each other, and we must pray for other churches. So let's do that right now. Let's just pray. Let's just pray. Just like Paul prayed for this church out of love. He knew that they were going down some wrong paths, but he prayed for them. He prayed for them. We need to pray for ourselves, and we pray for the other churches. There are so many churches we are connected to in the city and around this country that support us and pray for us. We need to be praying for them as well. I have a list here of about 10 churches and uh, those that are leading them. I was going to pray for them. We don't have time for that by name. Let's just pray for them, knowing that God knows who they are. We are praying for them. These are fellow saints. These are churches on mission for Jesus that redemption by the blood of Christ might come and lead to redemption of all creation. And let's pray for ourselves. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. If you want to, you could even throw a hand up and just, just, just think of that hand going as a prayer out to these other churches who are just, just like us, so easily distracted, disunified, and just pray for them. God, Father, send to us your Spirit. Fill us with the knowledge of God's will, of your will. Give us spiritual wisdom. Give us understanding that comes only by your revelation to us. Give us the ability, give these churches the ability to walk in a manner pleasing to you. God, help them, help us to bear much fruit, new life, through our good works. God, increase us in knowledge. Increase them in knowledge. That is the relational knowledge of you. Strengthen them. Strengthen us with power from your Holy Spirit to confront and push back darkness and evil, God. In the name of Jesus, we push it back right now. Give them, give us endurance to not grow weary. Give them, give us patience to not give up the good fight. God, in their gospel efforts, grant them joy that they may work in step with you. God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, your beloved Son, for the share of his inheritance that you've given to us, that you've granted us partnership with him. We thank you for all the saints in all the churches in this city and around the world, God, for our sister churches who support us and pray for us. We thank you for them. We need that prayer, God. Help them to keep praying for us. God, our hope is that all people everywhere would be transferred from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.